The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. podcast 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 listen to it wherever you want to it's uh, episode 219 of the pesky report i'm ed hand and i am joined today by brad chandler how are you doing brad i'm doing fantastic really excited about this episode yeah i'm i'm pretty excited myself because our guest today is uh the scouting director of socksprospects.com ian cundall how are you doing ian I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on, guys. It's always fun to talk baseball, especially now that we're getting pretty close to what are we about halfway through spring training? So we got closing in on the a, regular season. Yeah, we got less than a month. Yeah, because yeah, what the, March twenty eighth or something is opening day. March March thirtieth. Thirtieth. Yep. Yeah, we've got the WBC uh, going on before that, so there's a lot more baseball than we usually get. Especially like the last two years have been weird off seasons between the COVID <laughs> yeah. and the the lockout and it's it's nice to just have a normal off season uh lead in to uh to the regular season um i gotta say like this morning i woke up and i was like there's a baseball game already on like i I was at work i had to download uh an app just so that i can listen to the games and whatnot and i was just like super excited and pumped about it you know four hour games who doesn't love that uh, give me the pitch clock in the WBC immediately. That's my biggest <laughs> takeaway. I can't wait. It's, it's so much less watchable. Like I, I mean, as someone who goes to a lot of minor league games, like obviously I was used to the pitch clock, but seeing it in a television viewing experience, it's so much better. And I need it in the WBC because I can't. Yeah. I was like watching Cuba Netherlands last night. And I was just like, after four or five innings, I was like, I can't do this anymore. It's too long. That you lasted longer than you. I did. <laughs> Yeah. I um I, I watched the first inning and was like, oh my god, this is so slow moving. Is this yeah. is this what I've been watching for the last couple decades? It, it's wild. It's completely changed the the viewing experience from TV. Because yeah, I, I just I never noticed it with minor league games. When you're at it, it just feels like a normal game to me. But seeing right. it on TV, especially I think it's the major league level too, with like the commercials, like spacing it and everything, it really hits you how much of a difference it's making. Yeah, I didn't even notice it um, until June last year at the um, like the AAA games that I went to, and I noticed that I was getting out after two and a half hours, and I was like, "Yeah, huh, I wonder why these games are so much quicker." I guess they just have shorter between innings, or no, it's the pitch clock. It's all yeah, the pitch clock. It's all the pitch. Yeah, because that was my that used to be my like justification. I was like, "Oh, I was in a minor league game. You know, it's going to be about three hours." Because thankfully, we you know we don't have those long breaks from commercials, and it's like in reality, it's not the commercials. That's not what has made baseball long. It was. Pedro Baez walking around for two minutes or, you know, guys stepping out four times in the same at bat and the pitcher stepping off three other times and throwing over four times. Like that's what, and I just, I don't know the pace and the the pacing of the game is so much better this spring training, watching it and just the way it's being played. I just, I really enjoyed the way baseball is the direction it's going compared to where it was before. I hope you enjoyed that meatball I gave you. <laughs> but like to to your point, like right now the Red Sox are playing uh, Team Puerto Rico, 
and they're two and a half hours in and they're in the seventh inning. Yeah. So we got, we got two more innings left. This would be, that's longer than what every like preseason or every uh, game they've had so far. I'm pretty right. sure it's been about two and a half hours is about how long it's been for a yeah. nine inning game. Well, and I think the thing that I like the most is that it's not taking away from the action. Like you're getting a two and a half hour game that's seven to five with 25 combined hits and 10 walks. Like the things are still happening. It's just, it's condensed and in a, you know, much nicer experience for the viewer when you, you know, you don't have to dedicate four hours to a spring training game, which used to be the thing. I will say the one rule that I'm not a big fan of so far is the disengagement. Like the pitcher stepping off. I don't know. I I think that if you watched like last year, watching a pitcher throw over like four times for no reason was infuriating. And you saw the crowd like at the game would get very restless. And I think that that's something that uh, like they had that rule in the minors last year and I never noticed it. I'll be honest. They like, did. I, they had it at certain levels last year. Yeah. I think it was did double they... A. See, I want to say. I didn't, and I didn't recognize that in double A. I think it was double. Let me check. But there was one level that had it, and I'm. it was not really noticeable. Um, Do you think, though, that that and the bigger bases led to an increase in steals? Like with David Hamilton, 70, do you think that that might have been like 50 if um, if it had been with the rules from the year prior? Um, I do think maybe. I mean, Hamilton's really fast and a really good base runner, though. So I do think that he was going to steal a lot of bases either way. But I, I do think we're seeing, you know, I think we're going to see more aggressive base stealing. And I think that's part of why the Red Sox protected Hamilton was with these rule changes. He's the fastest guy they have in the organization, probably the best base stealer. So I, I don't, he was kind of the, with defensive versatility and that speed, it's something that you want to see how the rules adjust and don't want to, you know, you want to act proactively rather than have to be reactive to the situation. And by protecting him, you know, you lock that in for now. You can figure out the rule change, see how it matters, and see if he becomes, you know, a serviceable bench bat in that in that regard. Or if not, then you know, it's always some you can always remove him from the forty man. So I think that the, it definitely could have helped him last year. I'm trying to actually figure out which level. I think it was high A actually had it. Okay, yeah, because I'm about twenty yeah. minutes away from uh, uh, Hartford, and I go to a lot of their games, and I didn't. Oh no, 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 it was low A. Sorry, it's low A. I was gonna okay. say it was low A. Yeah. Either way, not double A. So what they did is low A had the disengagement rule. Uh, High A had that you couldn't step off. Or sorry, they had to to fully disengage from the rubber to throw over, which they didn't enact. Uh, Basically, you you couldn't do like the Andy Pettit pickoff. You actually had to step off to throw over. So they didn't do that. Then double A last year had the no shift and then triple A had the larger bases. So that's what it was. Okay, But yeah, but I, I remember going to low A games last year and not. I didn't really notice it. So, but it's also low A baseball. So weird stuff is going to happen often. So maybe that would kind of distracted me from it. Yeah. It's, it's a different, it's definitely a different beast at that level of the game than, uh, uh, than what we see in the majors. Yeah, with, the, with, with the pen league gone, especially or like short season, a ball gone. It's the wild, low A is kind of, it's a very different animal than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. Are you feeling, cause I, for the longest time I saw triple A games and I saw Lowell spinners games and that was my minor league. That was kind of my minor league experience. So I didn't really get to see that much of the in-between levels. Have you noticed a big difference since uh, that's been eliminated the short season? I? Yeah. Uh, low A is a lot worse than it used to be because you have guys who just aren't, shouldn't be there. Like you have a lot of guys. I think uh, I'm trying to think of someone from last year's team. Um, 
but basically you have guys, you know, who have to get pushed aggressively though. Those 18 year olds who, who played in the FCL or 19 year olds who played in the FCL the year before, but probably aren't ready for low a there's no in between now. And you're not really going to send them back to low a again. I, I think a good example, actually is someone like Eduardo Vaughn last year, or like this is deep cuts in the Red Sox system, but like guy, guy like him who was not ready to go to, uh, to Salem, but they had no choice because there's no lull anymore. Um, so you have to push those guys more aggressively. And I think you see it a lot with pitchers too. Like you have a lot of pitchers who just can't throw strikes in low A now. Whereas before that was kind of the level those polished college guys would get to um, that following season. You know, not like the higher draft picks who would usually skip straight to high A, but you'd have a lot more polished arms there. Now those guys are just, you know, they'll jump to Greenville. Like last year we saw someone like, I mean, I wouldn't consider him polished yet, but someone like Wyatt Old skips Salem and went straight to Greenville. Um, you have those guys skipping now. And so, yeah, I think the quality of pitching is really decreased too. And then I think it's kind of had a carryover effect where it's made it. So the gap from when you got guys getting to Greenville earlier, but the gap to then to get when you get up to double A, which is really your first exposure to kind of those like orgy arms that know how to throw strikes, know how to spring a, spin a breaking ball. They might only throw like 88 to 91, but they really know how to locate it. You know, those arms guys are getting up there at a much younger age. Guys like you saw like Matthew Lugo, for example, got up to Greenville or got up to Portland at the end of last year. Um, those guys are getting, you know, kind of tested more, tested more earlier by those better arms when they get up to Portland. I think that's kind of created a bigger gap between a ball and double a than we had before. Which is saying something because I, I always felt that double a was like really where you start seeing which guys are actually going to be able to, you know, to cut it against advanced pitching versus, yeah, right. yeah that's, got well, that's why I think last year, a good example, like Nico Cavadas, someone he destroyed Salem, which they probably shouldn't have started there in the first place. We went to Greenville. He was good. There was a slight drop off, but he was good. He went up to Portland. He got exposed pretty badly. And now it's on him to adjust. And that's the jump. You know, you go from green, the level of Greenville. It's good. It's not, you know, you're going to see a couple good arms per series. Like I saw them for seven, six, seven games last year against the pirates and the pirates had like two good starters, three good starters. And the other three games were pretty, you know, not, the, not the best pitching, but you get up to Portland and yeah, if you're a lefty, you know, who's got power, but a quite, who has a lot of swing and miss, like guys know how to get you out there. That's where you're going to run into, you know, the 28 year old who's in his third organization, but throws a hundred or, you know, the 28 year old who can hit sits, you know, 86 to 88, but can locate four pitches and pitch throws fastballs like 20% of the time. Like, that's the kind of stuff you're going to run into for the first time there. Man, how did how did you start getting into this where you because I, I you know, we listened to the uh, the Sox Prospects podcast a few weeks back where you talked about getting your start with the Frederick Keys. But how did you take going to games and just kind of chatting with scouts to what you do now with Sox Prospects? Um, So I started off and actually I was uh mainly working on editing scouting uh, scouting reports at the site and um kind of like helping out with a little bit of like writing um with the, with chris mellon who used to be the uh he used to head up the scouting department here and uh yeah so that was that was kind of what i started doing back in many years ago too many to count and um from there i just was like going to games on my own and yeah i started going with him a little bit and started meeting some of the people he knew um, and kind of just continuing to build that network that I started when I was down in Frederick or when I was down in DC the summer before. And yeah, just, it's really just been just going to as many games as possible whenever I'm free. Um, you know, I try to go to, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 games a year, as many as I can make it out to. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of reps. It's a lot of, you know, just going to games and just talking baseball with a lot of people, you know, and I, I it's now, you know, gets to the point where 
you know, I'll call someone up and we'll have a two hour chat about specific things or, you know, we'll talk about fastballs or, you know, we'll just talk about certain prospects and yeah, it's just kind of just everything is about um, a lot. All the free time is spent, you know, going to games and talking baseball basically. Yeah. Is it, is it like a joyful experience for you still, or does it feel like work? Oh no, I, I really like going to games still. Yeah, no, I, I, I think the best part is going to games. The driving's not fun, but the going. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I do enjoy driving, though, so it's nice just throwing a podcast and just kind of just set it in cruise control. But, um, yeah, no, I really enjoy going to games still. And I, I think that what makes it fun is, you know, you always see something new. You never know what you're going to see at the field. You never know who you're going to see at the field. You know, you especially with I prefer going to, like, the spring training games. Like, I, lo- I love the Penn League because you never knew what you were going to see. You were going to see some weird stuff there. Um, like, I saw a catcher's balk before in the Penn league, which I didn't even know was a thing until I, I saw didn't it either until yeah. right now. So it's on an intentional walk. If the catcher leaves the catcher's box before the pitcher like starts his wind up, then it's a balk. And that's how game ended. Like saw walk off hits there with Joe Davis running home from second on singles, which is always fun. Like I liked seeing that cause it was all new players. Um, but it's also fun. I think to watch the guys develop all the way up the system, you know, when you are starting to see them from when you're like a 17, when they're 16, 17 year old, to all the way, you know, following their career all, all the way up to the majors. Um, you know, guys like Xander Bogarts, for example, Devers, like they're guys that, you know, you first see when they're, you know, just so- after they signed or, you know, a year or two after they signed when they finally make the jump state side and then getting to follow their entire career up into the majors is, is a pretty cool and it's a rewarding experience when, you know, it's someone that you're, you're on really early in their career makes it to the majors, especially if it's someone who's not necessarily like supposed to be there, or not, you know, the most highly touted guy. Um, it's fun being, you know, that first person on them and being, you know, identifying them as a talent before they were really that well-known. Do you find it harder to, I guess, like keep your emotions out of it with a guy like that, or even somebody like Xander Bogarts, I felt like you guys had one of the less, um, apocalyptic takes on that whole situation, uh, this off season, but you like, you know, you saw him when he was a 16 year old kid, like, do you find it's more of a challenge to remove your emotions from it? Not really, because I don't really like I feel like as the more I've got ingrained with baseball culture, my fandom has kind of dissipated. Um, I used to obviously growing up, I was a huge Red Sox fan. But I think the more as I've gotten like in the weeds with it, you know, gotten to know people, gotten involved, I kind of have I, I I have to look at it objectively. I can't, you know, just because if you're a Red right. Sox fan, I can't be like every guy is you know going to be a Hall of Famer because that's obviously not the truth. So I, I think I kind of like. I, I think I like to think I do a pretty good job of separating fandom from just kind of being like an objective baseball observer. And I think it's kind of gotten to the point where I would consider myself more a baseball fan than a Red Sox fan. So I don't really like when I'm looking at a situation, I'm not really looking at it from a fan's perspective. I'm going to look at it like what is the best baseball move in this situation? And I think that with the Bogart specific, uh, situation specifically and talking to some friends who still are, you know, huge Red Sox fans, I, I, that was definitely something we differed on was I, when I looked at it from just a straight baseball perspective, like it was a no brainer. They weren't going to resign him at that number, but you know, I can understand also. And I think that's something maybe I didn't do a great job of, of um, kind of getting across was that like, I completely understand also that the, the fan, the fan and you can be upset at that too, you know? And I think that's that's something that at the end of the day, it's a business. And I think that's the hardest truth to accept is like because fans and I'm a diehard fan of some other teams in other sports like Michigan football, things like that. If you if you if you talk that with me, like I cannot look at that and not be like I'm going to be the most like I'm very passionate about that. And that's something I don't look up objectively. But with baseball, I think it's it's hard. You know, you got to remember it's a business at the end of the day. And with things like that, like there are there are 
there are things out of your control that are going to impact your team and your fandom. And you just have to like, you know, everything's not going to be roses. Like it's, there's going to be bumps along the road. You know, they're not going to be able to keep everyone. That's just the way that the game of baseball is, you know, not everyone's owned by Steve Cohen, you know, like teams are not going to run. Not every team is going to run a $400 million payroll. Like, so, you know, at some point, you got to there's got to be a limit and i understand you know with things like bogarts that was obviously a very tough situation him leaving but and you can you know there uh, you can nitpick if there were mistakes made along the way but at the end of the day the red Sox should not be matching that offer no team should have made that offer in the first place and i'm i'm very interested to see how it works out for the padres because they're playing a really dangerous game right now yeah they got xander until he's 41 and they've got i believe machado until he's 41 and darvish Darvish oh. also. Yep, and yeah. Here. And they yeah. still got Soto to try to hold on to. So they still have it's... to do Soto. They locked up they lock up Musgrove. Yeah, yeah. Did. Not to his long term of a deal, though. I think I think it's Soto's the big one, obviously, because they got Machado now. But yeah, it's I just Xander Bogart's is a great player, but man, does he scare me as a long term shortstop and with the way his hitting metrics are going, just really concern me. Man, I wish uh I wish other people would uh, say that because as soon as that happened, it was just like every fan was just like, oh, this sucks. Well, but I I can understand that from a fandom perspective, though, just like looking at it from how I view other things like, you know, if if someone if or if my like, you know, the the Celtics, for example, like if Jason Tatum left in free agency, obviously I I would be quite upset about that. So I can completely understand with someone who's the face of the franchise. And I I think that part of the issue, too, was the way that that things have gone the last few years certainly has not helped. Like if this happened, you know, coming off of another playoff experience, maybe they didn't exceed or meet their expectations, but they at least, you know, made the wild card round. I think their narrative would have been slightly different than coming off of a last place finish. But I think that also you got to consider that with Xander Bogarts and the rest of these guys, they finished in last place. So what does that tell you about the team? Like if their last place team with Xander Bogarts and the rest of those guys, you just want to run it back and not change anything. Like, I I don't think that does any good. So I think changes had to be made. And I think we're kind of seeing that there was some, some vibes issues, I would say with last year's team that, um, that I think that there's some veterans weren't really buying into what the, the, the kind of the plan was. And this is, you know, this is high and blooms team now pretty much fully like, it's on him and and the rest of those guys to figure it out, and and we'll see kind of what the returns are this year once they get going. Yeah, it definitely there's definitely been a vibe reset. Um, how 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 would you? Re- I I mean, you don't have to put a grade on it or anything, but how do you feel about the Red Sox offseason and the results of it? From what just from a team from a roster construction uh, perspective, it's tough because if Story was healthy, I'd feel a lot better. Um, I, I think they're they're probably a bat short in that story, but I think that they're in a position where they can definitely compete and should be competing for a wild card spot. Um, they're they're not as good as the Yankees. They're not as good as the Blue Jays, but I, I like I think they have a more defined path now than when they did coming into the offseason. And that was the most important thing for me is I wanted to see some clarity on that. And I think that they have, you know, there were a lot of bigger, like longer or a higher money, but shorter term deals. But it's with, you know, quality veteran players who, yes, they come with some risks, but that's why you were able to sign them. Like if they didn't have risk, you're, you're paying, you know, two X that number, 1.5 X that number for the guys. And I, I think that the guys they signed, they did a good job of 
beefing up the bullpen, which obviously was a significant issue last year. Um, I like that they have a more defined roles out there. I think it's a lot deeper, and I, I really like what I've seen from guys like Cutter Crawford this spring training. I think that they're in for a big season, whether it be as a starter or a reliever, preferably as a reliever for me. But I think that they've kind of gotten the bullpen to the point where you know, you can win in baseball with pitching and defense still. It's harder, but you can still do it. And I think that's the name of the game is they're going to be getting on base. They have a defined idea of what they want to do at the plate. You know, with guys like Tristan Casas coming up, who's going to play full-time. He's going to take a bunch of walks. Yoshida looks like he's going to be quality at bats. Um, Duvall walk. He strikes out a ton, but he's, he will, he'll take a walk too. And um, yeah, I, I think that they're just, they, they, it's a lot more of a cohesive team that makes a lot more sense. It, it seems more like they're going to be able to kind of like play off one and one another. And you see the kind of the plan and the defined roles. And I think that's something that's been lacking the last few years. Yeah. It's much more of a, some of their parts team. I feel like Oh, hundred percent. I mean, the Red Sox always have those star players though. And right now it's really, it's, it's Raffy and it, it's maybe on the off chance Chris Sale is healthy, but like yeah. those are the only two guys with any real name recognition. Well, yeah, and then there's definitely risk. I mean, with the starting rotation, especially. But I think what this this spring training has really shown me is that every pitcher is an injury risk. Like, I kind of think we've reached the point where you can't just assume that you know this guy is more likely to get hurt than that guy. Like any pitcher, you could have the perfect mechanics and you know, be the perfect pitcher like Walker Bueller, for example, someone like him, obviously he's small, but like no one talks about Walker Bueller getting hurt in the majors. And then he goes down or look at Andrew Painter right now, you know, the Phillies top guy who's six, six, like throwing, you know, 98 to hundred. And he's got some sort of injury where he's now quite looks like he might be ended up having to have um, some procedure done. Like you just never know. And I think that in, unlike past years, what they did do this year is they have like, they have options, you know, it's not like we're the sixth and seventh option are Ryan Weber and Jeffrey Springs before he became a stud. <laughs> like they actually have, you know, if, if with right now you're projecting Paxton, Bayo, how, and um, not how Whitlock. Yeah. Thank you. Might not be ready for the season. Okay, fine. You're filling that with Tanner Houck, who I think is a reliever, but he's fine. If you're going to throw him for five innings, four innings, preferably, but how, and then Cutter Crawford, who same thing, you know, he's serviceable as a starter. I think he can get by. And I, um, they have guys like that ready to go. Whereas I think, you know, that's a lot better options than they were past seasons. And I think that that gives me encouragement that they can kind of like get through some injury, some early season injuries and hopefully get those guys healthy and ready to go by, you know, May or so. Yeah. There are a few guys below that, that haven't, they're on the 40 man, but they haven't made it to the majors yet. And, um, one of them pitched today, that's, uh, Brendan Walter, Mm -hmm. and brian mata and then i think a little little lower on the food chain is chris murphy um do you see those guys playing an immediate impact in uh 2023 uh i i think they well it depends what you mean by immediate like i don't think they'll be up in like may but if you told me by mid-july that those two guys were up in some role i could say yeah definitely i could see that um I think Mata especially, I would not be surprised if he pitched his way to the majors in like a bullpen roll this season pretty quickly because his stuff has looked really good in short bursts. But, you know, still there's questions about is, is he a starter? Is he a reliever? But for this initial season, I think he could make the biggest impact in the most, you know, the, the shortest amount of time as a reliever. Right. And I mean, you've seen the stuff this spring. Like when he's on, it's nasty stuff. You know, he'll get up to 100. Like he's got a couple breaking balls, um, can locate, like, 
it's just you don't know if you're getting that from outing to outing or inning to inning. And that's kind of a question mark, you know. He'll be one outing, he'll be that, and the next he might only be 95, 96 with, you know, below average feel for both. So that's kind of the tough thing with him. But, yeah, I, I could definitely see him making an impact in the bullpen. And Walter, we saw today, like, he had two really good innings, kind of fell apart in the third. I thought he, his delivery got a little out of sorts. It seemed like he was kind of cutting it off, and his arm was just kind of lagging behind and everything. If you saw all his fastballs that he was missing were arm side, like, up. So, I mean, that's going to happen. He's facing the best hitters he's probably ever faced in his life. Um, and they did also, there are some professional takes in there. I don't know if you guys watched it, but like facing Francisco Lindor and Kike Hernandez, he's throwing like a three, two changeup. That's a perfect spot. And the guy just takes it. Like there's not a lot you can do with that. That's a good, nope. well-executed pitch. <laughs> um, whereas I, I think Walter has a better chance to start just cause I, I trust his command profile more, which is ironic considering I think he had like three walks today, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that he, he's got a, he's got a decent chance to start. Um, he can throw three pitches. He can miss bats with all of them. He throws a ton of strikes. Like last year when he was actually playing, it was like 75 strikeouts, eight walks, I want to say, between double yeah, A and triple A. Yeah, I think he went the first two months without what was like 60 strikeouts, zero walks at one point, which is. Yeah, I, I saw him pitch the first half of a doubleheader and he threw six innings in the game, took like an hour and 20 minutes. It was awesome. <laughs> and I think it was like six innings, 10 strikeouts. Like it was just, he just. Oh, was that picking. was. It was a doubleheader against. Uh, Bayo threw a no hitter in the second half of that one. Yeah, it was against. Um, I want to say Redding, but I'm that might be wrong. But yeah, it was it was a crazy doubleheader, and yeah, it was not long at all for two games. But he just really, um, he just no, really knows how to pitch, and I think that the biggest thing, and it's actually something I, I, they did a good job talking about on the broadcast today, is just the vol- velocity fluctuations are kind of what we need to see from him, and what I'm excited or looking forward to kind of getting some eyes on this season when he's out there with Worcester is, um, you know, what's his fastball and sinker playing at in the past. I've seen him up to 95, 96 before sitting like 92 to 94. Then another, like last year, he was like 88 to 91 by the end of the season when I saw or the end of his season, not the end of the season, but when I saw him. So that's pretty wide range, obviously. And I think he'll he would settle in at like 90 to 93, but I just want to see that like, Show me that you can still get to that 92, 93 in the fourth inning. That's kind of what I want to see from him because obviously the margin for error is a lot lower when you're pitching at 88 to 91 than it is at 92 to 93. Yeah, If he's at 92 to 93, what's like his 90% like top outcome? Mid-rotation guy, like a solid three. Like Because, I mean, if you're talking about if he's 92 to 93 with the movement he has on his fastball and the command, you can put a 60 on that. I think it's a 60 slider like the horizontal sweep that he gets is insane it's among among the highest uh like horizontal movement of any breaking ball in minor league baseball last year um and then his changeup is definitely i i like his changeup a lot too and i mean there have been outings where i've looked at it and had not been able to decide do i like the changeup better or i like the slider so or sweeper whatever he wants to call it these days so yeah i think you could even go 60 on that so if you're talking about a guy with three potential plus pitches um fastball probably doesn't get there but still i mean that's yeah that could be like best case you're talking about like a mid-rotation guy not a bad depth uh depth option to have but where does um where does murphy come in on this then because he's the other guy that got added to the 40 man uh this year yeah murphy murphy is an interesting one because he he's really um taken a step forward pretty much every year that he's been in the system like when he was drafted he, he didn't get a very big bonus i want to say he got like 250k or so out of uh, or 200,000 actually coming out of San Diego and um, kind of that the MO on him was, you know, struggles to throw strikes, pretty good stuff. Um, probably a reliever. And, you know, we're a few years on, I think he's probably still a reliever for me, but he's more like a multi-inning relief type. But 
I just like the way his stuff plays up in those shorter stints. Like he'll be up to 96 in those stints, whereas as a starter, he kind of settles in in the low 90s. Um, but yeah, I, I, he's got, you know, it's a good changeup. That's his best secondary pitch. I just think that the, what, what separates him from Mata and Walter is he just doesn't have that plus pitch for me. Um, you know, with, with Mata, he's got that insane velocity and he's got, you can probably, if you wanted to go, you put a plus on the breaking ball with Murphy change up his best pitch is probably more like a 55. And then both breaking balls are more like average to fringy for me. So I, I think that that's the thing he's lacking is he just doesn't have that true major league quality out pitch. And I, my concern is that in, in longer stints, you know, can he turn a lineup over where he doesn't really have that bat missing pitch? Um, I'm just not sure he could, you know, go four or five innings. And I think the thing is there are a lot of these guys. And I think Josh Winkowski kind of falls in the same camp that probably could go four or five innings, six innings. If they're playing for like the Royals or a team that doesn't really, you know, they're not exactly going to be that competitive, but I think, I think there's a difference between, you know, a guy doing that and a guy being effective. And I'd much rather have a guy be effective for two to three innings than throw four to five, like, meh innings. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, At what point do you make that decision, though, to, um, like, you're not a starter anymore. You're going to be you're going to be a reliever. Because I've heard that with Winkowski. He was hitting 99 miles an hour in, uh, in the Arizona Fall League. That seems like that would help with his bat missing problems but um when do you decide to make that move well it's it's a kind of a double-edged sword though because starters are just inherently way more valuable than relievers as we've seen developing starting pitchers is really hard so you don't want to pull the plug too early and risk you know missing out on a potential starter but at the same time i do think there are guys who could benefit or move quicker if they were in a, a pure relief role and so I think that's kind of what we've seen with the Red Sox is they, they've waited as long as possible um, with certain guys. I mean, there's there's guys there, there's there's definitely some guys who it's pretty obvious they're relievers um, and they you make that switch early on. But even like someone like Wyatt Olds, who we brought up earlier, didn't think we were going to talk about Wyatt Olds twice, but here we are, um, you know, with his arm slot, kind of the way he's a two pitch guy, like he's definitely a reliever. But at the same time. I understand why they're developing as a starter because if he was in a reliever, he'd never throw his changeup. Just and that's something he does. He even if he is going to end up in a relief role, if he can get that to a show me pitch, that's a big you know potential weapon for him, given how funky he is and how much trouble lefties give him. So you know, in a twenty innings or excuse me, a twenty pitch outing, you're never going to throw that. You know, whereas as a starter you have to throw it regardless. Like, and there are certain, like, yeah, he, he was definitely like forcing it in there and it wasn't good when I saw him, but he was still throwing it. And I, I think that developmentally it helps to develop those, that type of guy as a starter, because you can get them to work on their third pitch. They have to work on their command more. And that's why you see it. But usually I think the switch starts to happen. Like when you get up into the high minors is when you're going to see it. That's kind of where things get weeded out and guys get separated. Yeah, like Franklin Germain, I think we saw that happen with him. He yeah, he was when he moved yeah. when when he went. Yeah, he's obviously with the White Sox now. But when he got to Double A, they they changed. They moved him to the bullpen. I think it's more like the Double A level is kind of where you start to see it now. A long way of getting there. Yeah, I feel like I've been asking a lot of these questions, Brad. You gotta. You gotta I'm just sitting here like, here. oh my god, you know, um, the, the Red Sox are sitting here throwing guys up on the. Uh, they've got Red Sox pitchers thrown to the Red Sox batters now because they're up nine one. So I, I was like <laughs> the I best, like, best spring training team ever. Yeah. Right. And hopefully they continue. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So um, me, I, I was listening to your episode uh, where you were talking about, I believe you were talking about Noah song, uh, mm-hmm. which we don't have to talk about that. Cause we talked about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sure everybody's. We were done with him. Yeah, right. Um, but it's like you when you go to these games, right? And like my biggest thing is, is like I I can't tell the difference between a pitch. Yeah. You know, like I can't tell if it's fastball. I can tell if it's a slider. I can tell if yeah. it's a curveball. But like, how do you differ? How can you tell the difference between these pitches? Um. Well, I think the, the it's the biggest thing is where you're sitting. Like, there are a lot of minor league parks where if you're not directly behind old plate, it can be really hard to tell. And frankly, there are some parks where even if you're behind old plate, it's tough. E.g., a great example of that is rest in peace, Pawtucket. Um, that was a horrible place to watch breaking balls because you were elevated above the catcher. So you just had no perception of depth on anything because it just looked like it was just, you know, there. Um, but yeah, no, I think the biggest thing is just being able to sit behind home plate. You, you have that good, really good line behind the catcher and it lets you kind of see it. But um, also you, you can look for certain cues, like with when they're releasing the ball, you can kind of see the ball coming out of their hand, the way it's spinning. Um, you know, there's, if it's a curveball, obviously there's going to be more rotation than if it's a fastball or change up things like that. And I, I think then the end is also the movement at the end of the pitch. Like, you know, you kind of just learn that, you know, breaking balls are going to go this way. Changeups are going to go this way. Like splitters are going to go this way. Um, and then after the fact, I mean, obviously it's, it, there's the, the track man data is really nice to see too. Cause that obviously really helps out, you know, when you're able to see the spin race and things like that, that, that pretty much you're able to see, and you see it with the stat cast data too, that the MLB has. Um, when you go on that, you see like that, this is the band that a fastball is going to be at and the spin, the velocity and the spin. This is the, the same thing for, um, breaking balls, changeups. And so, you know, when you have that angle with, I, I have a radar gun too, and, you know, or, you know, no plenty of people who have them at the games. Um, and uh, frankly, some of the parks actually have better radar guns than others within the Red Sox system. Some are, some are actually tied into the track, man. So they get the accurate number up there. Um, so yeah, when you kind of put all that together, you're able to tell it, uh, it makes yeah. it a lot easier, especially when you've been to as many games as I have. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I get people at work that just like, Oh, you're a baseball nerd. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not like, <laughs> like I can, I can introduce you to some, baseball nerds you know and that's a no offense to like, uh, no, anybody I, yeah. you know and it's just like i had i've always had that question like i'll be watching a game and i'm like how do you differentiate the uh the pitches like uh, like yeah. i said you could tell a slider you could tell that chris sale is throwing a slider as opposed to like a fastball and stuff like that it's just it's mind-blowing to me uh yeah. as a person who actually watches like you know, as many games as possible. And then I can't tell the difference. Yeah. Well, it's also funny too, though, because there are certain things like there are some pictures where I'll be like, Oh, that's a slider. And then, you know, someone will mention it to you. Oh no, they call it a curveball, And it's like, come on, like, no, that's a slider or, or vice versa. And it's like, some of it is frankly, it's, it's, dependent on you know the pitcher can decide what they want they want to call it basically <laughs> like you know is it a cutter is it a hard is it a cutter or a hard slider you know is it a change up or a split change up or a splitter like what are they calling it like yeah it can be i think the heart um the hardest one though is is differentiating between the fastballs like there are certain guys who are throwing like two seams or sinkers then you other other guys are throwing four seams and like there'll be some, some guys have like a pretty distinct velocity range or like enough movement, but there are other guys who don't really have a lot of movement. So it's hard to tell, Oh, is that he trying to throw a sinker there? Or did that just a four seam that has some sink? Like what's going on here? So that could be a little difficult, but yeah, it, I definitely can see if you're not, you know, used to being trained behind home plate and seeing that it, it can, I can imagine from like the first base, third base sides, you're not, you don't have a lot of perception of the pitches. 
Right. Uh, so I have a question about a player in the organization. Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot of people know of. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but I know his last name is Jimenez. <laughs> is this a Joe Hilberto Jimenez question? Yes. So can you give us anything on him? Yeah. Um, yeah, he he's someone who uh, back when he was in Lowell, I was a I was a very big fan of. But unfortunately, his development is pretty has stagnated as he's gotten up the levels and kind of he's gotten more exposed to better quality pitching. Um, he's an, a very athletic like he's built like a running back or a safety, um, like really strong frame, very fast, kind of a twitchy guy. But uh, his problem is he just I, and the swing just doesn't work. He, he kind of just slaps at the ball and puts it in play. And that's why he's able to carry high averages because he's a good runner. You know, he's like 70 runner. But so if you put the ball in play with that speed, especially in the low minors with the defense you're facing, you can get on base and run an average close to 300 with that. But um, he just doesn't doesn't impact the baseball. You know, his exit velocities are really low and his quality of contact is really, really bad. Like he'll just make a lot of like routine weak ground ball outs on pitches that he should be trying to square up and drive and. When, when you have that that issue and then your approach is pretty poor, which his is, you know, he he rarely walks. Um, he's got a decent amount of swing and miss in his game. That's a pretty rough combo. But because right. of his athleticism and his speed, you know, he's someone that you keep alive um, in the sense that, you know, you keep him in the back of your mind. You keep him on the prospect list because if something clicks for him with the type of athlete he is, there's still obviously some upside. But the, the longer it goes on, the less the chance that he's able to reach his ceiling. Yeah, there's a couple of years ago I I heard something about him, and I was told to like keep an eye on him. And I saw him like beat out a, uh, he hit the ball to someone at second. And he he beat it out, and I was like, wow, this dude's fast. And then, oh yeah, that, he's very fast. Yeah. That's disappointing to hear that. Yeah, that's why it's one of the things that they they Red Sox just for whatever reason not had that many true like burners in the system over the years. But Hamilton obviously is, is I think, the best example of the, the new the new era of that. But Jimenez has that speed, but I, I think is a good example also of, like, the difference. There's You can be fast. That doesn't mean you're going to be a good base runner. Right. Like, he had 20 stolen bases last year, and he got caught nine times. And he's probably raw speed-wise pretty similar to Hamilton. Like, the, the, the intricacies of stealing a base are a lot more complex than just being super fast. And I think that's one area of his game that – you know, even if he's going to develop into just like a bench guy, he's got to figure out how to, you know, be able to read the pitchers better, get better jumps in order to make, to make use of his speed. What is a prospect? You know, obviously we're, we're watching some of these guys, uh, sit on, um, we got Hamilton. Uh, we've got some of these guys from the minor leagues being uh, playing in the spring training games right now. What are some, or who do you think that uh, Red Sox should keep an eye on? Well, I think Raphael is the obvious one. We, we, we've seen a ton of him this spring, and I assume we'll, we'll see a lot more of him, especially with the WBC guys heading out or already gone, um, with, as most of them are, especially the outfield. I mean, what they lost Verdugo um, and uh, and Duran are both there. Um, Raphael is definitely the, the first one for me. I, I think he's someone that he's going to be very popular because of the way he plays the game. You know, it's balls to the wall at all times, and his defense is just that good. Like, he makes those plays. There was one in a spring training game a couple of days ago that was on like a deep fly ball over his head. And he just nonchalantly caught it off to his side. Kind of like I remember Jackie Bradley doing that for years. And it, it it looked like a routine play. But when you watch it, you realize he went like, you know, 120 feet and beat the ball still by, you know, a couple seconds. 
And I think that's just, he's that instinctual and that good a defender, which is just insane too, because he only started playing outfield like two years ago. But um, I think his defense will make him a very popular player and he's got, and I think the other thing is that his setup and load looks a lot like familiar to Red Sox fans because it reminds of a certain outfielder who's no longer on the team. Um, and I, I think that that is, you know, that people like to see that. Um, I don't think it's fair to him to compare him to that player. Um, I think that that's kind of setting unrealist, unrealistic expectations. And frankly, I think in the long term could end up, you know, kind of being bad for him because when he gets up and if he's not that player, people are going to be disappointed. And when in reality, if he gets up to the majors and plays gold glove defense and hits 220, he's going to be a everyday player for the Red Sox or someone. So um, I, I think he's definitely very exciting. Um, I think the other, the other person to watch and it's, that's kind of a no dub, but I think Tristan Costas is going to have a great year. Um, I've been really impressed by what he's been doing this spring. I really like the way he transformed his body in the off season. Um, I think that, you know, he, he realized last season that in with, with his, it's it, cause it's a high maintenance body when you're his size, like that's, you got to take care of it. Um, and I think that, yeah, he did a good job of transforming from, you know, kind of was a little softer last season to, um, getting to the point where this year he, he'll hopefully be able to withstand a full season's workload. Uh, and I just think that his approach and power is really going to play. And the big question, I think something that I've been really impressed with is the quality of at-bats he's putting against against left-handed pitching this spring training. Yeah, um, He's had pretty significant platoon splits in the minors before. He's crushed righties, but lefties are kind of giving him a little trouble, especially driving the baseball. And I think two, both his home runs so far this spring are off lefties. And I just think he's been showing a consistent contact ability with against lefties, which was one of the bigger question marks for me and kind of made me wonder why they hadn't signed a, a right-handed hitting first base option. But after seeing him this spring, I'm all for just turn the keys over. He's your everyday guy. You know, if Turner needs to play first base t- twice a week to get him off his legs, that's fine. But I'm, uh, I'm really excited for him. And I think that he's someone who could be a really big part of their future starting the season. There's one guy that um, I've noticed you getting very excited about on Twitter, and he's I, I'm just glad that there's somebody besides me that's excited about him, and that's uh, Luis Guerrero. Um, yeah. what, why should we be excited about Luis Guerrero? Because uh, he throws 100 with a splitter that has a lower spin rate than a knuckleball. I mean, what's not to like about that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw him in the same game as a knuckleballer, and uh, his splitter has less spin than a knuckleball. And that is is madness. His stuff is just raw stuff. And then this is the key. It's raw. It's very raw. Like he's someone who was, I think he was like a 20th round draft pick out of a junior college. Um, And he was throwing, you know, in the mid nineties before. And now, yeah, when I saw him last year in Greenville, he was like up to a hundred, like every pitch was 97, 98 miles an hour. And that splitter is just, it's when it works, it's just a devastating pitch. Like, dives completely out of the zone and i don't i haven't seen another person with a splitter like it and that's the most exciting part to me is you know and kind of talk circling back to what we were talking about earlier you never know what you're going to see like this was a guy i wasn't really paying attention to in the system i didn't really know much about him like he wasn't even on scouts radars like when i was talking to them after the fact about him they were like wait what what did i miss here like how did i not see this and yeah he just came in and he the splitter, you know, he's got 10, 15 miles an hour separation from his fastball. And it's got that late, like nasty parachuting action that just, just hitters have no chance against it when he throws it correctly. And, you know, when you're, you're throwing up to a hundred with that pitch, then um, you have a chance to be a major league reliever. 
And obviously, you know, there's things he needs to iron out, consistency, command, things like that. But just on raw stuff alone, it's him and, you know, like guy like Ryan Fernandez have the best stuff now that uh, in the minors um, of the pure relief prospects. So I think it's it's also telling to me or interesting to me that he's getting some run in spring training this year. You know, he's one of the few guys who hasn't pitched above um, high A who was getting into games that are not like, you know, as a filler arm to close out an inning because a guy couldn't finish it or things like that. So he got like a legit inning in a game. So I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely excited to see what he can do this year. And I would not be, if he takes a step forward, like he did at the end of last season with Greenville, he's someone who I think is going to be a, a pretty popular name uh, going forward on the Red Sox prospects lists. Now you guys it's with, with the uh, Sox prospect 60, it's um, it's a joint effort. Um, and you guys, I mean, it's the, the product is so good because you guys do manage to be very objective about it. Um, Thank you. Appreciate you that. don't, you don't see that for a lot of other, my dad um, for an Apple league we're in has the uh, Kansas city Royals as his minor league system. And he's like, there's no objective takes on these guys. Like everybody's great or until they're not. Yeah. But with that being said, everybody has a bit of a bias. What type mm-hmm. of players do you find yourself being more, uh, you, you rate it higher. What, what's your bias? That's a good question. Um, I think with pitchers, guys who can locate a fastball, um, I just, I think that obviously the the first thing that is going to jump out the page is the velocity. But I just, if I see a guy who can really like command his fastball, it doesn't matter how hard they're throwing, that is going to pique my interest because A, it's going to keep the game going, which I'm a big proponent of. But B, um, I, I think that, that that gives you, you know, if you have that, it gives you somewhat of a floor. Because at the worst, you know, you're going to get to the high minors and be an or guy if you can throw strikes. And I think for position players, um, it has to be hit tool. Like if if you can make consistent quality contact and have a good approach, you know, you're not too much swing and miss, things like that. It can cover up a lot of sins. And I, I think we've kind of seen that, you know, with the the the, the weird guys who got in the majors like Luis Arias, like he can't do anything but hit. But his hit tool is like a 70 or an 80. So, he, you know you can get away with having 20 power and being a 30 defender and having 30 speed. So I think that, um, yeah, if I, I think if I see a guy who can really hit that, that, that stands out. And then I guess the, the last one is if you, if you can hit the ball really, really hard, <laughs> who doesn't like that? Like, let's be honest. And I, I think the, the best example of that is someone like Miguel Blyce, who, you know, is an 18 year old is po- putting up, better than major league average exit velocities. Um, and when you see something like that, that really is like, Oh, okay. Now, now we're talking like, and obviously there, there's way more risk with those guys than the hit tool guys, but you got, you got to have some fun in life and, you know, look for the guys with the ceiling too. So I think that gives a nice balance when you have the, you know, the kind of like the safer hit tool guys and then the more exciting, you know, impact the baseball exit velocity types. When you've said that some of the things you've heard about scouts about Blyce are borderline irresponsible, what what does that mean? What what like what are they comparing him to? Um, like very 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 good baseball players in the majors. Like, I mean that what that is is I've seen reports that you know they've submitted and they're just you know they're very glowing. I'll say um, there's not a lot of prospects who I've seen reports with that many big numbers on them on the 20 to 80 scale and the conclusion being you know this guy could be him basically um you know he could be i mean it's obviously the chances of it are low but i, I think we're starting to see it nationally start to pick up like fan graphs 
talked about how they had him, I think, what, 25 or something, 27. Yeah, that was, that was a surprise. And uh, I think Eric said in his chat that he wouldn't be surprised at all if he was in, what, the top 10 next year, top five, or even number one. Like, it, it's that type of raw ability that, you know, there's only a few guys that you hear that talked about. It's the Acuna types. It's Julio Rodriguez. It's guys like that, you know. Obviously, the odds are very low, but to even be mentioned that, hey, it's kind of like the starter kit for that, that's when you kind of your jaw drops. And you're like, oh, okay, that's very cool. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's that's kind of just without getting too detailed into it. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's names like that are, you know, bandied around. Yeah, so um, just going to give you a couple of uh, fan questions if you've got a couple more minutes. Um, great. I thought I had loaded it and I didn't. I got you. Yeah, you got uh, them. So from uh, Andrew Dwan, what impact does uh, do you foresee all the driveline hires having on the de- uh, development of players? It's a good question. Yeah, the Red Sox have really hit the driveline coaching staff hard this offseason with a lot of their roving instructors and um, guys like that. And um, I think that what we're going to see is that maybe we'll see. I think it's more of like behind the scenes stuff. I'm not sure we are going to see it like on the field, if that makes sense. And I, I, I would guess it's going to be a lot of like kind of the, 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 what they're doing in the behind the scenes cage work and on like the bullpens and everything is going more with the um, kind of like the driveline approach, like the weighted balls and all that stuff um, to, and obviously the Red Sox were doing a lot of this stuff already, but I, I think that, yeah, it's probably, just kind of an in, more of an integration between what their current methods were and bringing in some more driveline principles into their um, kind of the practice and what they're doing behind the scenes. The next one is from uh, Sammy James. Uh, generally, what do scouts need to see to assign an 80 grade and hit tool or power? And what are the signs besides the obvious great contact and lots of home runs? Um, so I'll go with the power first, cause that's easier. So, if it's raw power, it's basically seeing a guy hit a baseball really, really far. And I'm, I'm, I'm not dumbing it down. I'm dead serious. It's like showing up in batting practice and watching, you know, Bobby Dahlbeck, who doesn't, nah, he doesn't have 80 raw, but seeing someone, um, actually, you know, who does Gary Sanchez, watching Gary Sanchez, you know, in Greenville hit it over the apartments in left field or like, you know, seeing things like that, that's when the raw power is, pre- is probably one of the easier tools to evaluate because it's literally, yeah, it's just, how far can you hit the baseball but um hit tool is is definitely harder because i think there's there's more things that go into the hit tool obviously like your contact ability is a part of it but you also need to see the approach um and that's why i think you know when you look at there's way more 80 power guys than there are 80 hit tool guys in, in all of baseball like when you look at i think like the sites like Fangraphs or espn or whoever putting together they actually put the, the grades up of their top 100 players like count how many 80 80 raws you see versus how many 80 um hits you see like i think i'm trying to think of other than wander has anyone gotten one and i can't so um yeah i think i think an 80 hit tool is a lot harder because you just don't see it whereas 80 raw power you can see like there are guys who would never make the majors who have 80 raw power but it's because they have a 20 hit tool so you can uh that one's a little more like tangible and easier to see uh, from Big Sox Guy, how does the current state of the Sox farm system compare to top farm systems the Sox have had during your time scouting the organization? Uh, that's a good question. 
Um, I mean, it's obviously better than it has been the few years. I think it's it's on the right. Uh, it's heading in the right direction right now. I think we obviously it bottomed out during the Dabrowski, the end of the Dabrowski year, that like 2018, 2019 stretch when it was just kind of, I mean, understandably, you know, via trades and various other things, it uh, a couple bad drafts. It just really was in a rough place. I think Heimblum and Co have done a great job of rebuilding it. They've added, they've gotten the depth back, um, and they've they've added some high end talent too. But I, I think it's still not as good as it was like back in when you had like a, the two heirs that really stand out to me, or when it was like Ben Intendi, Moncada, Devers, all those guys were in the minors together. That amount of high end talent at the top, the Red Sox are getting there. But you know, I think they had a one point what three of the top ten guys in all of baseball. And then similarly, kind of going a little further back, when that 2011 draft class was coming up, when you had, you know, Betts, Bradley, um, Barnes, Owens, Herrera's, all those guys, like that was the, when the system was extremely deep. So I, I, and obviously it was when it was coming off of a completely different rule set for the draft where you could just sign whoever you wanted more or less within reason. So I, it's hard to kind of ju- compare that era to now. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's not as good as some of those classes, but it's definitely on its way back. And I think, you know, when, when you see nationally, I, I would put it you know, in the middle, probably it's like the 13 to 15, 12 to 15. If you want to go as high as 10, I'd be fine with that. But kind of in that range is where I, I think the system is right now. Um, but with an up arrow next to it, and especially if some of the pitchers they've had, um, take a step forward this year, I think it could definitely jump into the top 10 by next off season. Uh, from Connor McGonagall, um, who would you like to see the Red Sox take uh, with their first pick? And who do you think the Red Sox will take with their first pick? It's tough to say at this point. Uh, the, the, the college baseball season has just got started. The high school seasons for a lot of places haven't been, haven't even started. Like teams are really early on in formulating their drafts right now. So I, I, I it's, it's impossible to say at this point, I don't really lock in on the draft until, couple weeks before it and uh it's especially like i'll go to the occasional college game but even that's not not kicked off in the northeast yet so it's it's just far too early to say something like that um it's also a lot harder when you're picking near the middle or bottom of the first round than when like the red Sox were picking at four a couple years ago because and as we've seen like teams draft boards just differ so drastically from what the national list can be like you know a guy like nick york the red Sox had a first round grade on probably based on where they took him and you looked at, you know, BA and all those other places, not no one had a first round grade on him. So it's just, it's all team dependent and it's all what their scouts see. So it's really hard to say without, you know, without being in the draft, which obviously no one is. So it's, uh, it's, it's tough to say at this point. So we have two more uh, for you uh, from mini tyrant. What do you think uh, Romero's absolute ceiling is uh, and 90th percentile outcome? Uh, yeah, I'm assuming he's talking about Mikey Romero. Um, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So I, I would say, I mean, everyday shortstop, like a 60, um, you know, that's probably what you're talking about. Like the 90th percentile outcome, um, you know, a guy who can hit play solid defense, like more of an average over hit over power, but still, you know, someone who can hit, you know, 280 to 300 with 15 to 20 home runs, I think is, is what you're looking about there. Like a really, really useful player. Um, yeah, and I think I think that's kind of what you're looking at, um, 90th, 100th percentile there. And the last one from Red Sox, bro. 
Uh, ask him if the system is closer to Keith Law's 23 ranking or Baseball America's 10 ranking. In the end, it's what Sox, uh, Sox prospects says that matters most. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I kind, of, I kind of addressed that a little earlier, but yeah, I would lean more towards the 10 than the 23. Um, I, I think that a fair ranking is more like, yeah, 13, 13, 14. I, I think that I, I completely like what Keith was saying. Um, I see what his argument is, especially with the pitching. Like there's definitely a lot of risk there. There's not a lot of depth, but I, I think that the same can be said, like as kind of what we were talking about earlier, um, just pitching prospects are so risky. Like, you know, you, it's all well and good to have Daniel Espino or like Andrew Painter, guys like that who are top 10, but like, who knows, like pitching prospect development is just so up in the air. Like guy, like I, I always think back of someone like Anderson Espinosa with the Red Sox, you know, the Red Sox trading him. He was like a top 20 prospect in the system. And he's what had three Tommy Johns and barely pitched in the big leagues in his career. Like pitching prospects are just tough. And I, I think that's kind of why we've seen the Red Sox go away from it for the most part. You know, they haven't really used high draft picks on them. They haven't spent a lot of money in international free agency on them. Like it's kind of a volume game. Just sign as many as you can for a good amount and see who sticks versus, you know, spending a first round pick or, you know, significant assets or resources on them early. And um, I think that's kind of what, what we've, and the result is what we've seen where, you know, they're nationally, they're not, their pitching staff or the guys they have aren't really recognized because, you know, they're not big names. They're not guys that they draft in the first round, second round, or guys that they gave, you know, a million dollars plus two in a bonus, either in the draft or internationally. It's a bunch of guys who, you know, they're basically hoping that you find some pitching traits that you like and see who can pop up. And I think they have some guys that really could pop up this year. And I think that would be the key for me um, to, for them to get into that top 10 is like some of these guys like Luis Perales, Elmer Rodriguez Cruz, um, these low minors arms kind of taking that next step forward is the key for them. Uh, if, if they want to move up those national lists, probably, because I, at the end of the day, like the top at high end bats, you can't really get better than what they have right now with those guys. You know, when you've got three guys who are, or three or four guys who are all top 100, maybe York jumps in there, but it's about, yeah, it's going to, they got to get that, figure out kind of like what's that next wave of pitching after that group of high minors guys we have right now with Mata, Walter, and um, uh, Murphy, who's kind of like that next tier of arms. And that's, that's the big question, I think. Um, so that's all of our fan questions. I got one more for you of my own. And that's um, what, if any player that we haven't mentioned yet, um, do you think could be a big surprise um, in a positive way for the team this year? So this is as in helping the major league team. Yeah. Um, let me look. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I, I can give you, I got one. Um, and I, I, it's another person who's really impressed me this spring training. It's Emmanuel Valdez. And He's not a shortstop. Let's get that out of the way. Um, <laughs> anyone who tells you he is, is not watching baseball, but um, he really, really can hit. And I, I, I've just been really impressed with his at bats so far this spring. Um, he's someone who I remember going to a game last season and seeing him for the first time. And I, I talked, I was talking, talked to some scouts about him and the, the feedback was kind of tepid. A lot of it was centered on the fact that he's, not a good defender, which he's not. But um, I remember, and I think he saw like 16 pitches and he took all 16 of them and walked four times. And I was like, I feel like at one point you just got to swing for the sake of it, right? Like if you've walked three times, like just go up there and swing. Like 
And he was just like, nah, I'm just going to walk. And I think he, I think he walked for his first four bats. And I think he like ground out or something. His fifth at bat, but it was, um, it was there. I was like, Oh, okay. He really like, there's certain guys when they go up, they look like they're guessing. And I, Raphael is a good example of this. Like I've seen his spring at bats and he's definitely taking more pitches, but I'm still not convinced he's not just taking them for the sake of it. Like there, cause there's a difference between knowing what you're taking and just taking it because you're told to basically. And I, I think that with Valdez, like he has a plan when he goes up there and when he takes a pitch, it's a meaningful take. Like he's taking it because he can't impact that baseball. And when he does swing, he's trying to kill the baseball. And I, I, but it's controlled enough where like, he's not a big strikeout guy. Like it's, you know, going to be in the 20% range, but the low twenties, probably he'll take a walk. And I just really like his offensive kind of the approach and the all fields ability he's shown this spring. And when I saw him last season, and I think he's someone that if he can figure out the defensive part, and that's a big, if like he's, it's a work in progress, even at second base. And if he's not a second baseman, he's probably a left fielder or a DH because he's like five, nine. So I'm not sure he's a first base. You could fake it at first base. So, um, but yeah, I think that his bat could be something that, especially if like he can show enough defense that you could see him in the second half, if Arroyo's maybe struggling a little bit and they want to kind of throw someone new out there and hope they can catch lightning in a bottle. I think he could be someone who could come up. Um, and give them some quality of bats and, and, you know, knock a, hit a few home runs and do some stuff to get the crowd fired up. Um, cause yeah, I, I think that he, he's a fun guy to watch at the plate. Do you like the comparison that, uh, has been made between him and, and another <laughs> all-star? <laughs> I, I do not actually. Um, <laughs> I, if you can probably guess, I'm not a huge fan of comps. Um, I, I think that every player is their own player. Basically it's, it's right. kind of cliche. I feel like, but I don't think it's fair to put the expectations of a fan base to be like, what is this guy's comp? Oh, well he's, you know, especially if you're comparing them to all stars, because at the end of the day, the odds are there's maybe one all-star in the system right now. Like, but being realistic, you know, it's, it's not like the numbers game, the numbers don't lie. It's not, you know, the, the success rate is not very high for prospects. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's okay if you're using it in the context of like his swing looks like that. But if you're comparing the skills to a certain outfielder for a team that is X Red Sox plays for, who that outfielder also once played on the East Coast in a city <laughs> inhabited by political figures at a stadium near a river, then um, yeah, I, I, I don't love that. I don't love that comparison. No. I'm that that was like the most amazing. <laughs> no, I don't want to name names. Like, I mean, no, I just want to give no, people I an idea totally who we're talking it. about. Yeah, you know. Yeah, if they don't know who we're talking about, then whatever, it's on them. But not naming any names. It's fine. No, no. <laughs> he just has four letters in each of his names. But you know, but no, I I can see the similarities in the swing, but I would not compare his skills because that eight letter name person. Um, who plays for no i'm not gonna do it again um he uh yeah soto uh, so you don't compare people like that's why i don't talk about the blaze stuff you don't compare players to them like yeah like there's so few players who turn into those one you know top what are they top one percentile in all of baseball like the odds are the red sox don't have a single one of those in the system right now and that includes marcelo meyer i love marcelo meyer i think he's an excellent player the odds of him being that like 70 elite you know talent are very low like 
do I think he could be a solid everyday player? Absolutely. Like that's the most likely outcome for me, but those guys who have that ceiling or it's just, it's so hard to find them. And that's why, yeah, I don't like throwing that name around, even if it's just with the stance, because it can often get misconstrued. And I just think that, and taking it back to what I was saying about Rafaela, I, I like, I want these guys, they're all really interesting prospects and they deserve to not have that weight of they get up and like, it's not a failure. If, as I said with Raphael or if Valdez gets up to the majors and is a two sixty hitter with 15 home runs a season, that's not a failure. That's an incredible outcome. Like becoming a major league baseball player is really hard. And if you can turn, like if any of these guys get up and make the majors, that's a good outcome. Like Bobby Dahlbeck for development and what they, what they've put into him and where they drafted him and everything the career he's already had has more than given that return back. And so I just think, yeah, it's just, it's just hard when you hear those guys compared. Cause it's like, this is really setting things up badly um, because yeah, baseball is so hard and there's very few Juan Soto's or Mookie Betts around. Like those guys don't grow on trees. And if they did, you know, teams would be loaded. Their liners would be loaded with them. There's a reason there's only five, six guys like that in all of baseball. Yeah, the perspective there, especially with the numbers, is uh, very helpful when you have, um, you know, some of the Sadon Rafaela comparisons that you alluded to uh, earlier as well being a little uh, not not the best for the player. Um, no, no. And and I, I think, though, that that's why with Blaze hearing names like in that tier mentioned with his ceiling is what catches your eye, because like, as I said, with even with Mayor, you don't hear that. But with Blaze, you do. So it's like, oh, okay. Like, and obviously, and when we're talking about ceiling, we're talking about like 90th, 100th percent of the best possible outcome. But yeah, um, you know, the odds of that are low, which is why I don't really want, that's why I've not really, I don't really delve too into it as I don't want to get people setting, you know, set him up for failure. I, he's an 18 year old kid, you know. This, there's a ton of ceiling. What he's already showing is really impressive. Let's let, let's let it play out before we get into that stuff. Yeah, let him be Miguel Blaze before exactly he's else. Exactly. So one last thing uh, for people who don't uh, visit your website and look it over and whatnot. When do you expect? You know, speaking of uh, Marcelo Meyer, when do you expect him to be able to make a uh, an impact with the big league? It's an interesting situation because I he's going to start this year in Greenville. And if you really wanted to get aggressive, I don't think you could rule out seeing him next season because you just do the math. Like he starts this season in Greenville. He ends next. He ends the year in Portland, kind of like what he did last season. I think that's a realistic expectation for him to, you know, to go to Greenville, play there until end of July, then go up to Portland for a month or two to end the season. And if that's the case, then you figure next season he starts in Portland if he's really good there, he's in Worcester by midseason, and you know, you never know. Like, if he destroys AAA, would I rule it out? No. Do I think it's likely? No. And I think you're probably looking more like 2025 then, because I think the the way the Red Sox they've tended to be more conservative under Hyam Bloom and the current Dev staff compared to what it was with Dabrowski, where like Andrew Benintendi came up straight from Double A. I don't think we're going to see that anymore. I think it's going to be more. They have certain kind of like expectations or baseline, like achievements that they want to see guys hit you know whether it be a certain number of bats a certain quality of a bat things like that at each level and you got to tick all those boxes before you're going to get promoted and i think that just in, because there are so many of those they, they've 
it it's not slowing things down, but it just, you know, it takes longer to do that. They they want to see they want to see a bunch of benchmarks be hit before they're promoting because you don't want to risk Russian guys because Russian guys can definitely have a negative impact. Um, so I, I think 2025 is more likely, but I would not rule out like end of next season if and that's assuming if everything goes like great the next two year and a half, then that would be the t- the fast timeline for me. Well, have you got anything else, Brad? Uh, nope. No, I do not. All um, right. Well, Ian, do you want to plug your, your pod and, and your website? And oh, yeah, sure. People, tell I people mean, I, where I, they I, can find you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm all for free promotion. Um, why not? Uh, yeah. Just check out SoxProspects.com. That's uh, the main website. We got scouting reports, news articles, nice forum where you can chat red Sox with a bunch of like-minded fans um fun stuff there all my scouting reports are up there so if you go to the page like every player pretty much who is come stateside has a scouting report based on something i've seen or talking to scouts about them and then uh we also have a podcast Sox prospects uh, podcast it's on all your podcast apps you can check it out there and it's on youtube too if you're uh if you like that um we don't have the cool video set up like this or the intro or outro. So we're really gonna have to step our game up. But um, that intro, by the way, blew my mind. I would like to say Bravo. That was uh that was very impressive. Um, but yeah. And then on Twitter, I'm at Ian Cundall, um, I A N C U N D A L L. And uh, you can check it out there. If you want to tweet here about the Red Sox, probably 99% of my tweets are related to the Red Sox prospects. Um, the other 1% are references to michigan football or manchester city soccer and that's all you're gonna get so uh yeah if you like any of those things feel free to check it out thanks again so much for coming on with us again this has been an uh an absolute thrill uh for me i assume for brad as well i'm i was in shock for like the first 20 minutes like i'm listening to you guys and i'm just like because i knew like I'm trying to learn the whole like minor league system and stuff and like i'm super pumped that uh the certain TV package is including the minor league TV. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. I, I'm I applaud MLB for doing that because see, I was trying not to say that, but <laughs> <laughs> well, we got we'll give Rob Manfred credit where when he deserves it. But um, Theo. but yeah, no, I I that's I like I was very excited to see that move because I'm hopeful that. Uh, you know, uh, the Red Sox have all these affiliates have cameras. The games are all on TV are all streaming online. So now if you're an MLB TV person, you can uh, you can check them out. And I would highly recommend it because there's uh, the, the Red Sox affiliates. There's a, it's a lot of a lot of fun stuff going on. And uh, also, I highly recommend if you can make a trip, there's definitely some fun spots to go down to go down to Greenville, get up to Portland, get out to Worcester. Um, even check out Salem if you're in the area. But um, yeah, no, there's a lot of a uh, lot of fun stuff going on in the Red Sox minors, and I'm looking forward to an exciting year. So thank you for having me on to talk about it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we're looking forward to it as well. So we'll uh, be back in a few days. And again, it's Ian Cundell. See you guys all next time. <laughs>